Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ask Dr. Death podcast with your hosts, Dr. Karen Wyatt and Dr. Terry Daniel. This is the place to ask the tough questions about tough topics related to death, dying, and grieving. Here you'll find candid conversations about things that aren't normally discussed in polite society. If you have questions for your doctor, your grief counselor, your professor, your pastor, or your guru, we'll try to tackle it for you. Our interview guests include experts in a wide range of disciplines related to death, dying, and bereavement, including doctors, counselors, psychic mediums, scientists, shamans, and even people who are themselves facing imminent death. Got a question you'd like us to address? Send an email to askdrdeath at gmail.com, and we'll try to tackle it in an upcoming episode. So without further ado, since we're all living on borrowed time, let's get started. Hey, everybody. Hello. Welcome to Ask Dr. Death. Nice to be back with you all. And it's really nice to be here today with my new friend, Kevin Bradley, who is with the Final Exit Network, which is going to be a sponsor and a partner with the Afterlife Conference this year in 2021. So we're really excited to introduce you to their work. And today we're going to introduce you to Kevin Bradley. And I'm going to just turn this over to him so he can introduce himself. Take it away, Kevin. Yes, thank you, Terry. Um, Hello, everybody. Yes, as Terry mentioned, uh, my name is Kevin Bradley. And I have been with Final Exit Network since about 2016. Uh, I kind of backed into it. I was at a uh, Minnesota State Senate listening session is what they called it, just informing the community about the medical aid and dying bill. And at the time I was serving as an in-home hospice chaplain. And so that was sort of my framework. And I was surprised to find out that they had nobody in hospice and they had no clergy that were on their side. And so I introduced myself and said, I'm both, how can I help? So they invited me to then testify uh, on behalf of the uh, medical aid and dying bill that was going through the legislation at that time uh, when it came around to official committees. So that's kind of how I got involved in it. And uh, I happened to meet a final exit network board member was also at that same session. He introduced himself. One thing led to another. Uh, I wrote an article for uh, final exit network on uh, my view uh, of a chaplain's view on a right to die. Soon after that, I became a speaker and then they invited me to, uh, to uh, join the board of directors. All this time I had no intention of becoming an exit guide. Um, because I am ordained, and frankly, I was concerned that I might lose my credentials. Mm. And we're gonna, I'm going to interrupt you for just a second and let everybody know that we're going to explain in a minute what an exit guide is and what final exit network is. Okay, go ahead. Right. So, uh, however, in order to be a board member, I had to go through the training for uh, exit guide training. So I at least had a clue what that was all about. It was very clear to me that it was a deeply, deeply spiritual experience. And so I said, okay, at the very least, I agreed to be an associate guide. And we'll get into that later. And I did that off and on for, uh, for three or four years. 
And within the last year, I actually made the decision to go ahead and pursue becoming a senior exit guide. So um, uh, that's the path I'm on. So um, that's where I'm at. Okay, that's excellent. Really nice to meet you. The Afterlife Conference is really excited to be working with Final Exit Network. So now tell us what Final Exit Network is. Let's start (laughs) with that. Okay, well, many people are aware of medical aid in dying and the efforts around the country to get that legislation passed. Uh, The biggest organization that is behind the lobbying efforts is called Compassion and Choices, Well, it turns out that Compassion and Choices and Final Exit Network actually originally started as the same organization. They traced their lineage back to the Hemlock Society, uh, which was started by Derek Humphrey. Uh, He had been, uh, he was a Brit from England and he had moved to America after he helped his wife uh, to die after she suffered with breast cancer for several years. He wrote a book about that experience and he had such an outpouring of, of letters and calls that he knew he had to do that. So he started Hemlock Society. And Now, was uh, that book Final Exit or was it another book prior to that? There were two books. Actually, he's written several, but the first one was called Jean's Way. His wife's oh. name was Jean. Oh, nice. Okay. Right. And he wrote actually Final Exit. Uh, he wrote Final Exit several years later. Okay. So... Uh, Yeah, but the bottom line here is uh, the two organizations, what is now known as Compassion and Choices and Final Exit Network, they had a mutual uh, agreement that they kind of split when Compassion and Choices, uh, well, I think they had a different name at the time, but those people decided to focus strictly on getting the laws passed. And uh, Derek's vision was a little bit broader than that. He wanted to be able to um, uh, work with directly with the people and not deal with the legalities and the laws. Yes, he was very instrumental in getting the first Death with Dignity Act passed in Oregon, uh, but he didn't want to be limited to that. So the groups split up and uh, many Final Exit Network members uh, are also members of Compassion and, uh, and Choices. But what Final Exit Network does is basically we offer help, uh, and I I hesitate to use the word help, and and I'm going to say why in a moment. Uh, Compassion and You support people in their intentions. Right. So what we actually do, so anybody who has done any research in medical aid and dying, they will find out two things. Number one, it's not legal in very, very many places. Uh, currently, it's in nine states plus Washington, D.C. So that leaves most of the country still without it. And even where it is legal, it leaves a lot of people out. Uh, for instance, if you happen to be diagnosed with, let's say, early stage cancer and early stage dementia, by the time you're within that six month window that is required, you will no longer qualify because the dementia will mean you're no longer of sound mind. Right. Um, So Final Exit Network, uh, piggybacking on Derek's research, what we do is we direct people to publicly available information such as the book Final Exit. Um, And we also support people in trying to figure out, okay, what are my options? 
Now, sometimes if somebody happens to call a final exit network and they live in a state where medical aid and dying is legal, we will often say, have you looked into this? That might be a good option for you. Or we might ask them if they've ever heard of uh, what is commonly known as VSED, an acronym which is Voluntary Stopping of Eating and Drinking, a very common thing among hospice. Mm -hmm. And some people, you know, most people don't know about it because they've never had to. So we offer education as to what that process really is. And we tell people what they can expect if they want that option. Another thing we do is if we find out that somebody's advanced directive is not being honored, uh, we will offer legal advice and counsel free of charge to make sure that they get their uh, advanced directive honored. And that tends to happen more often than not when the nursing home or hospital has some connection to a religious institution. That's, I'm really glad you said that. That's the reason I'm talking to you instead of many of the other representatives of Final Exit Network, because you have the training as a chaplain. And there's so many questions I want to ask you about everything you just said. So my first question is, if somebody is in a state where uh, physician-assisted death or whatever the name of it is officially is legal, then you will first refer them there. Is that right? We, well, it's not so much a referral as just letting them know that that is an option that they have. We don't have anything to do with it other than turning them over uh, and sort of uh, saying you might want to check into that and see if it's an option for you. Okay, that's great. And so what I really wanted to focus on today, and thank you, that was a really good explanation. And um, a lot of our listeners are hospice people, so they know what V said is I'm a hospice chaplain myself, so I've I've seen all of this. And so Final Exit Network, based on Derek Humphrey's book, Final Exit, which was published in 1991, I think, um, the thing with that book that got it banned all over the world is what? Tell us, Kevin. Uh, Well, (laughs) it wasn't so much banned all over the world, except in Australia. Oh. um, I believe. Uh, But it it did get a lot of... um, a lot of bad press. Yeah. Uh, it's because a lot of people are uh, connecting it with assisted suicide. Because it tells you exactly how to end your life. Yes, it does. It, 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 that's what it does. It provides, it, it provides the actual, in fact, the subtitle of the book, Final Exit, uh, something like, you know, a guide to, to suicide. I, I have to actually look at the cover uh but it's very clear from oh there we go the, the practice i have it right here in my library <laughs> there you go so um the, the subtitle is the the practicalities of self-deliverance and, and assisted that's, suicide for the dying yeah and assisted suicide for the dying now you get to splitting hairs as to what assisting means right that's a big thing yes and so what final exit network does is we will tell people about the existence of that book. We will send people to Derek Humphrey's website where they can buy the book. We can also buy it in any bookstore and a lot of libraries have it. So it's publicly available information. Just some people don't know it exists. Um, And as I mentioned before, we talk about VSAD and we talk about uh, medical aid and dying. And if all of those options are not there, and then if the client says, you know, I like what Derek Humphrey is suggesting. What's next? 
So they submit an application to us. And one of the first things they have to do is send in all of their medical records. Uh, we do have a medical evaluation committee. Uh, they are comprised of uh, licensed physicians of various, various uh, specialties. So psychiatrist, ophthalmologist, whatever it happens to be. And then at least three members of that committee review an application and their basic function is just to make sure that yes, this person, what they're claiming is legitimate. If they are terminal and they're suffering. Well, they're suffering. Terminal comes down to, uh, as you know, for hospice, you have to be considered within six months. Well, that's just to be paid for by Medicare. Right, right. right. Terminal, you, that's not, you know, the real definition of terminal. That's the Medicare definition. That's, and I'm glad you pointed that out because yeah. that is actually the, the medical aid and dying version of terminal. They use that same word. Oh, they, they do. They, they can, use the same word. Yeah. So in order to qualify for medical aid and dying, you need to be within that six months. So the couple of differences between that and final exit network is that you do not need to be within that last six months. Mm -hmm. you, you do, however, need to show legitimate documentation that you have whatever the physical illness is. And then based on the collective knowledge of the medical aid or the uh, medical evaluation committee, they can say, oh yeah, I can see why this person is suffering. Uh, whether it's pain or whether it's just loss of autonomy and dignity. Um, it's often a constellation of illnesses or situations. Um, and so they, they make a decision as to whether or not they think Final Exit Network should be supporting this person. So um, we're doing an interview with somebody else from your organization next week about the practicalities of it and the screening process and all that. And I, I want to okay. come back to the spiritual stuff with you. Right. Um, so just as an example, so nursing homes will not honor an advanced directive for religious reasons because some decision maker in that nursing home, whether it's a nurse on duty or whoever uh, thinks that they're playing God if they allow someone to die, but they don't, quite get it that they're playing God if they keep someone artificially alive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, when I was the in, argument, right? Yes. Yes. But when I was in my residency as a chaplain, um, one of the first real aha moments was to find out that family members of a patient would come in waving their scripture, whatever the religion, and they would say, you have to do everything possible for my, you know, fill in the blank, husband, wife, whatever, because life is precious. Da, 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 da. Meanwhile, the next room over, somebody is waving the exact same scripture saying, don't you dare touch them because, you know, you're, it's interfering with the will of God. So it's people God's have love. literally used the same scripture to argue completely opposite viewpoints. And, you know, speaking as a theologian, which, which both of us are, this can be said about any argument on any topic using scripture as, as evidence, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Absolutely agree with you there. <laughs> yeah. So how, how would a nursing home not honor it? So let's say a patient is in the bed, it's the middle of the night, the family's not there, the patient goes into a cardiac arrest or stops breathing or something, and even though they have a DNR or an event, well, different than an advanced directive, let's just say a DNR, 
they will still resuscitate them? Is that what happens? That has happened. Um, so unfortunately, there's nothing we can do in that moment. But if a family member or friend uh, learns about that and they contact Final Exit Network, then we can step in and we can help. We can either uh, provide legal counsel or we actually now have a surrogate consultant that will step in and act as a healthcare proxy. Um, when I do speaking engagements on behalf of uh, Final Exit Network, I try to make it clear that everybody needs two things. They need their advanced directive, but they also need to have a healthcare power of attorney or proxy, whatever you want to call it. Because right. when I was working in the hospitals, I saw doctors not honor the advanced directives because of maybe it was three years old mm -hmm. and they didn't know the patient. And so they, they, they used hospital policy, but sometimes hospital policy might say, you know, if the advanced directive is less than a year old or whatever, then we're not going to honor it. And, and the patient, of course, is in no condition to argue. So what I suggest to people is make sure that you have your advanced directive and that you renew it every year with sign it and date it, and notarize it or whatever. And you also have a healthcare uh, power of attorney. That person takes that piece of paper to the hospital and enforces it. And the, my tongue in cheek uh, explanation is that that person's job is to get in the face of the doctor and yeah. say, you will honor this advanced directive or I will own this hospital next week. Wow. That's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, I was talking on another podcast recently, a story about a man with fourth stage cancer of some kind. And his doctor said to him, well, you know, we're going to continue to, we'll do this intervention and that chemo and this thing and that thing, because God wants you to live. <laughs> And, yeah. the, you know, and the guy didn't say that the patient, but in our discussion, you know, somebody said, well, if God wanted the guy to live, why would God give him cancer? <laughs> right. right. And, and what a, a, a just insanely inappropriate thing for a doctor to say to a patient. Well, know? so getting on the spiritual realm of things. We all are familiar with uh, the fact that medical professionals have the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocratic Oath. So it's all about at first do no harm. Right. Well, I say who defines what harm what is? What is harm? Exactly. And spiritual, psychological harm is every bit as harmful as, as physical harm. Uh, so that's just kind of my platform. You know, you don't get to decide what harm is. And you know, some doctors, maybe they atheists and they don't think there's anything after this life and they have their oath and they have their credentials. But the biggest thing that makes them do that is hospital policy. More than religion. Yes, because um, th there may be connections in religion, but it often more often than not, it's they don't want to lose their job. And so the hospital policy says you must do everything possible to keep this person alive. Unless the person has a DNR. And it's honored. Yeah. And it's not and always it's honored. honored. What about paramedics? I have heard that differs state by state, but um, 
if you have a DNR, even if you have the pulse on your refrigerator and you, you have a heart attack and your wife freaks out and calls 911 and the paramedics come, by virtue of the fact that they were called, it's in, determined to be a call for help and they will resuscitate you. Um, well, I do believe that varies from state to state. And if I, in fact, it might vary, uh, you know, within uh, local communities also. Um, I have heard cases where in a small town, especially the ambulance crew is a friend of the family. Right. You know, yes. and they go, nope, not doing it. Uh, you know, and they may, they may risk their job. Um, but that's because why. Because they see the pulse tank, the pink piece of paper, green or whatever color it is hanging on the refrigerator. Is, does that work? Uh, well, it's supposed to, but it, you know, you have experience in hospice and, as I do. And so um, one of the first things that a hospice patient and family is instructed is from this day forward, do not call 911. Right. Of course. You know, call the hospice organization and then we, we will do that. And that's, it was part of my training as the, one of the reasons to do that is to avoid exactly what you're talking about. Right. But then there's always, you know, the wife that panics because, you know, to not call 911 sort of goes against natural instinct when you see somebody gasping for air on the floor. Sure, sure. Well, and that's why you also be careful what institution you're living in. Mm -hmm. Um, Some places don't have a choice. There may if they live in a small town, there may only be one nursing home. Uh, but again, when I do my speaking, I suggest that people really check out, uh, not only, you know, what is the meal plan, but who really owns this institution, right? Because if it's a religion, especially if it's Catholic and they own a lot of stuff, um, you really need to think about what the implications are of that. And in this day and age, when, the buying and merging and, you know, they may have, they may have uh, checked, you know, grandma into a nursing home that was a non-for-profit, not related to any kind of a religion five years ago, but between then and now it got bought out by the Catholic church down the street and they don't know that. So if that happens, can you sue that nursing home? If they, if the DNR is up to date and everything is all the, T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and they don't honor yes. it. Is that a lawsuit? Yes. yes, they can. And there are stories of people who have successfully won those lawsuits. Unfortunately, by the time it goes through court, um, medical bills are through the roof, not to mention the emotional trauma. Uh, in fact, I was just, um, I was just, uh, as the blog editor, I, I talked to a lot of people who have stories, and I was just reviewing a blog article, and they were talking about, apparently it's a fairly famous book, I can't think of the name of it right now, a woman who happened to be visiting her father, and he, she was simply preparing a syringe, uh, I don't know what her nursing background was, but she was sort of preparing this syringe, and dad says, hey, you know, can you give me that vial? And I'm thinking like my own mother, if she just said, hey, can you hand me that? I'm thinking maybe she wants to read the label. Who knows? Mm-hmm. So she handed him the vial and he immediately drank the whole thing. And what was it? I don't know. But uh, she then immediately called the nurse. And the nurse's first response was to call the police. 
So in this vial was some sort of concoction that he knew was going to kill him. Exactly. And I don't know if it's morphine or Dilaudid or something, but um, so the way the story played out is uh, the police came and I don't know what the timing was, but she was stripped of her legal right of her father's proxy. She, I don't know if she went going to jail, but um, she ended up uh, getting arrested. And so probably got, went to jail. She ended up going to court and she ended up uh, being found either not guilty or she sued or something. However, by then her father died and without his daughter at his side. Right. Cause she was in jail. Because, well, first of all, she was not allowed, even if she wasn't in jail, she was no longer his healthcare proxy. And so then the nursing home had the authority to say, you can't come in here. So those kinds of stories, unfortunately, uh, are all too common. I'm not going to say they're, they're majority of cases, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, if it happened once, it's enough to, you know. You know, the religious thing is such a big issue. I heard a story recently from a pediatrician friend of mine. This was his patient. Two-year-old baby was dying of brain cancer. And there was no hope in any possible universe that this baby was going to survive. And the parents were Pentecostal. And they had the whole community praying. They had the prayer groups and everything, you know, praying for a miracle to save this child. And the pediatrician, who's very into conscious dying, said, you know, we need to have an end of life conversation. We need to talk about how far do you want to go to sustain his life, you know, feeding tube, ventilator, et cetera. And they said, we can't have that conversation with you. Because even if we just merely talk about end of life, God will know that we're not faithful enough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, and it's that's a very extreme example, but I've seen everything yep. that across the spectrum as you have. Yeah, and you can't change people's minds. Oftentimes. Um, if they're so steeped in, in that kind of uh, uh, faith tradition. And uh, I lean towards uh, Buddhism, Taoism kind of approach to things um, more than anything else, probably. <clears throat> and the way I look at it, well, <laughs> kind of a tangent, but you know, at, since you're a hospice chaplain and you have also the, the religious background, I often find it incredibly ironic that anybody who is raised in or has any kind of a Judeo-Christian framework, why are they afraid of death? And why are they afraid of their loved one dying? It's right. like you won the lottery. Right. You, you know? get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. Now, the Jewish thing is a little different because there is none of that. But the right. Orthodox Jews really believe in heaven. That's yes. a very big part of their thing. You don't see that in like reformed and, you know, modern contemporary, but the Orthodox absolutely believe in heaven and an afterlife. They believe that the dead will communicate with you. Your dead wife will send you messages. They totally believe that, which is, which is great. Everything else they do, not so great. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, you know, I remember when the, when the last Pope died, 
I don't know, five, eight, ten years ago, whenever it was, one of the popes died, and millions of people were crying all over the world. It was on TV, his funeral, millions of people just sobbing their guts out. And I thought, why? If anybody gets to go to heaven, according to them, it's that guy. Yeah. Yep. Why aren't they celebrating? Well, it's interesting that you mentioned celebration. When I was in my first year of seminary, uh, I ended up uh, as one of these, you know, I was walking down the library and a book literally fell off the shelf in front of me. It had nothing to do with what I was looking for, but I picked it up and started looking at it. And I was reading a story that there is some tribe, and I can't remember if it's in South America or Africa, but it's some indigenous culture, very, you know, not touched by man kind of story. And their culture is that the younger the child is, the bigger the party if wow. the child dies. And it's because they, their culture says that God has chosen that child to spare the child from a life of hardship. And so the child is revered, and then the parents become honorary tribe leaders, um, honored, you know, because they must be really special in order to have a child that is chosen by the gods. And I just thought, what a healthy way to look at it. Well, it's, it's, you know, I work with a lot of bereaved parents. That's kind of my audience. And, you know, uh, with grief, we always need to make meaning of our losses. Mm -hmm. And religion itself is one way of making meaning of our losses. I mean, all religion is created from trying to understand loss. Like, why did the crops die? Why did right. the baby die? Right. Um, and uh, one of the grief groups that I work with a lot calls those parents shining light parents. Mm. And my child died also when he was 16. Right. And, and I feel that way about myself. I do feel privileged and special and chosen mm -hmm. to do this work because of that. And I feel like my son in some deeply cosmic plan of some kind said, I'm going to do this for you. This will be our plan in this life. I'm going to die so that you can go get a doctor of ministry degree and, and help <laughs> people with grief. So yeah, that makes sense. And, and, you know, talking about other cultures, and you've had a lot of experience with other cultures. Um, we have so much to learn from them. If we just stick with our own Judeo-Christian uh, view of life, death, and the afterlife, we're, we're looking at like 10% of what we could be. Oh, yeah, if, if that. Uh, well, I mentioned the Buddhist and Taoist influence. I think that has helped me a great deal when doing grief counseling, because it's the Buddhist and Taoist uh, idea of non-attachment. Right, exactly. And anybody who's grieving, well, I, you know, even today, if you get a what I consider a conscious person who is officiating at a funeral, you know, they will talk about how we don't grieve for the dead. We grieve for ourselves. And so if I look at that deeper, okay, what exactly are you grieving for yourself? What, what are you losing here? And if uh, now mind you, the Buddhist and Taoist, they have their own grief process, but my understanding of that is, the people with that framework 
will find it much easier to grieve because they have this idea of attachment as not being a good thing anyway. Right. And it's important to make, to designate the difference between detachment and non-attachment. Uh, and I've, yes. I've written about this in my books, you know, detachment ah. means that you don't care at all about the thing, you know, like I'm detached from football. Right. Football could disappear from the planet tomorrow and I wouldn't even notice. I'm detached from that. Right. right. Non-attachment means that you love football a whole lot, but if your team doesn't win, you're okay with it because it's the game is fun. Right. Exactly. There's a, exactly. There's a difference. So, yeah, I mean, we could talk for hours and hours about this, you know, and I'm sure you've studied grief theory and, you know, grief counseling a lot and, it all changed in the 60s from Freud's original view that the, perp, the, the goal of grieving is to eventually detach from the person. But after uh, about 1950, when the Chinese invaded Tibet and the Buddhist monks were chased out of the monasteries and they came to Europe and then eventually to the West, they brought their philosophy to us. And that got wrapped up into grief counseling theory. And then around the 1960s, early 70s, we had grief researchers talking about continuing bonds mm -hmm. and reframing the relationship with the person as they're still somewhere right? and we still have a relationship with them. We just don't have a physical relationship with them. Right. Well, and that gets into the religion thing again, especially in the Christian framework and, and others too, but mostly in the Christian framework, this idea of heaven as being a place that you go to yeah, and some piece of real estate. Um, I have had so many patients uh, who have had near-death experiences, and it doesn't matter what religion they are. They all have a very, very common thread. And even before I was on that path, just having those experiences, there's no way that you can convince me that it's just lights out. Yeah. Well, you know, once I take my last breath, even... Uh, I've done some studying in you know quantum physics and whatnot, just because I'm interested in that kind of stuff. And my understanding is that in the last, I don't know how many years, quantum mechanics says that there is no such thing as death because we are energy and energy cannot die. It only changes forms. And so we just change forms. Our bodies decompose, but even that the body becomes you know, hate to be the graphic, but food for worms, but it also mm -hmm. becomes the fertilizer for other plants. And anyway, so yeah, our bodies go one place, our soul, spirit, whatever you want to call it. Energy. The energy. Yes. The mm -hmm. energy. My personal view based on my studies is that I just call it source or universal consciousness or whatever. I will simply go back to wherever it was I came from. Right. I have no clue what that is. And I don't think anybody else does either, unless they happen to be one of these gifted people who remembers. Uh, so, um, and even if not... they are one of those people and they remember their own interlife, that's what we call it the interlife, the life mm -hmm. between lives, they're only remembering it from their own perspective. And that's only true for them. And everybody has filters. Yes. And what we experience in near-death experiences and journeys out of the body are culturally influenced. Absolutely. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I mentioned the people who have had near-death experiences. I was really quite surprised. Uh, well, not surprised that people who had a Christian background, they mm -hmm. reported seeing Jesus. 
Totally, of course. Well, people who did not have that framework reported the exact same thing without Jesus. Right. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Are you familiar with Melvin Morse? He wrote a book. I am f- yes. I have not read the book, but I, I'm familiar with the name. Well, he, his book came out in 1970 something, and he was a pediatrician. And he wrote about the near-death experiences of very young children between like three and seven who were resuscitated. And if they had a Christian orientation, they would go see Jesus. If they didn't, they would see Disney characters, <laughs> grandma. One of my favorite things a kid said was, I flew up into the sun and it hugged me. Ah, uh, So yeah, so that's a thing. And he did that research a long time ago. And that really took us a long way into understanding near-death experience. Um, there's a book that you might like called The Atheist Afterlife by David Stom, S-T-A-U-M-E. And mm-hmm. he talks about the physics theory of conservation of energy. And he gives this example, like if you're in a car and it fl- you, you lose control of the car, it goes, flies off the cliff, pummels down to the ground, crashes and explodes and burns. You're dead, obviously. The energy of the car has now turned into fire mm-hmm. and heat. Uh, it ultimately will turn into rust mm-hmm. down there at the bottom of the canyon. And, you know, who knows? And then your body, you know, if, you're, if they never find you, you know, the worms will eat it or whatever. Everything just keeps going. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to stop it. But I think didn't Einstein say, this is above my pay grade right here, but energy will just keep going until it hits something that'll redirect it somewhere else? Is that a thing or am I just making that up? Well, it's certainly consistent with what he talked about. Uh, I, but it was either Einstein or Newton that talked about that a body in motion will stay in motion until it hits a, um, an opposing force. That must, that's what I'm thinking of then. Yeah. yeah. So, and I think that applies. I mean, now we know, and of course, Newton didn't know this way back when, but now we know that there is nothing truly solid. Everything is vibrating atoms. Right. Uh, and so everything More is- More or less dense. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And so to me, there is absolutely nothing that is not scientific about the idea of, of life continuing. Right. The problem is when people get stuck in trying to describe what that is because of some book. Well, that's the thing. The only problem with people discussing the afterlife is that it's traditionally only defined by religion. Right. So when you say afterlife to people, the first place their mind goes is the Christian afterlife. Right. And so, you know, if we could strip that away, if we could take all the religion out of afterlife conversations, we would open up a whole new world. I agree. And, um, you know, as a theologian, one of my favorite scriptures, and mind you, I disagree with a lot of what Paul said. Yeah. Uh, modern Christianity is not based on Jesus. It's based Absolutely on Paul. Right. It's Paulism. But, right. And, but one of the things um, either he wrote or he quoted an Old Testament scripture, which was, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Mm-hmm. I love that because from a, from a perspective now in our conversation, there really isn't any spiritual death. There's only physical death. Right. So that's why I like to use the old death, where is thy sting? Because he's saying death has no power over us on a spiritual level. 
The problem with that and with everything that Paul said is the definition of us. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Because when he says death, death has no power of it, he only means saved Christians. Right. Who well, signed he, up for his, his multi-level marketing program. He, uh, he had his filters too. Uh, one, <laughs> one of my other favorite quotations that is very intentionally taken out of context. It's uh, the original scripture supposedly says, be still and know that I am God. Right. I just like to truncate that and say, be still and know. Or just be. Be. There you go. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And that's Old Testament. I don't know where that's from, but it's very ancient. Yeah. I, I think it's one of the Psalms. Yeah. Yeah. And Paul did what with that? He, well, he, uh, no, that's, that's just, so my two favorite scriptures, one is, oh, that's it. Yeah. Staying, right? well, yeah. But, and that be still is thing is so beautiful. And that, and right. what that says is everything you need is inside you. Mm -hmm. It's all right there. It doesn't need to be an outside third party entity. And which is of course what Buddhism says. Right. We could talk about this for 10 hours. <laughs> I'm I mean, sure. This is my favorite topic in the world, but um, we've kind of run out of time. Um, tell us, let's go back to uh, the final exit network. How can people find you? And, uh, and, and how can they find you individually separate from that? If you Okay. <clears throat> well, it's the website is finalexitnetwork.org, uh, I think. It is or you can just Google it. Uh, you know, if you just type in final exit, you're likely to go to uh, Derek Humphrey's website, which is just final exit. And ours is final exit network. And you can, um, you know, read through there. And I'm listed on the page. It says leadership because I'm a board member. Um, and so just call them and say, you want to talk to me and they'll find me. That's probably the easiest way to do it. Um, so yeah. And, and there's speaking engagements. And when people say, well, what can we do to help? Most people don't care about this until either they've been diagnosed with something or a loved one does. Mm -hmm. So when I do go out and do a speaking, you know, before COVID hit, you know, go out to do speaking engagements. And I would always encourage people, don't wait until you're dying to reach out to us. Um, and that's why we talk about the advanced directives and, and all that. But partly because now that we've sort of expanded our services to include legal advice and whatnot, uh, you can help us help other people by becoming a member. Um, and, but not so much just for the money because it's, it's cheap. It's like 25 or 30 bucks a year or something. But the most important thing, and this is kind of the final point that I are not so much final, but the big point to me is that we have learned that the vast majority of people, regardless of their religious background, agree with our basic philosophy the problem is they don't know we exist. Right. So we're no longer in the business of persuading people. We simply want to get the word out that we're here. So if anybody in your audience would like to invite me or any of the other members of Final Exit Network to come to their organization or to do a Zoom call or whatever, that would be the best way that you could help us right now. 
Well, I can do that for you. I mean, I've got you guys as a sponsor of the Afterlife Conference this year. Unfortunately, I didn't meet up with you until too late to add you as one of our conference speakers, or I would have definitely done that. But at this point, the roster is completely full. Um, our conference is going to be live in 2022 in Portland. So I'll definitely oh. have you for that. And I do um, podcasts and workshops and stuff all the time throughout the year. So so you guys are now a resource for me. Well, good. Yes. Uh, and um, uh, for those who don't know, if you want to tell them that you wrote something for us. Oh, uh, well, we've been, we are exchanging blog articles. So I have you, one of your articles on our Afterlife Conference blog. And I think you just put one of my articles on your blog as a two-parter, right? Yeah, that's correct. That's okay. correct. So yeah, we're looking so- yeah, we look forward to continuing that relationship. Um, you know, all things are coming together. Obviously, it's been a crazy, crazy year. Um, so we just have to see where things go. And uh, who knows what the political spectrum is going to look like, whether medical aid and dying is going to become legal in more states. There is one version. It's back on the docket in Minnesota. Um but I was told by my own very liberal representative in my hometown that he frankly doesn't think it'll come up for a vote this year. Mm. Um, so, but there's always somebody who's trying to get it pushed through. Do you off the top of your head know the names of the states where it's legal right now? Uh, I may miss a few, but the first one is Oregon and then the state of Washington, uh, the state of California, Montana, has an interesting outlier because they didn't actually vote on it or pass a law, but in a lawsuit, a, the, the Supreme Court of Montana, or maybe it was an appeals court or district court or whatever, but some judge someplace in Montana declared that uh, medical aid and dying was not wrong. So they didn't actually have to pass a law. They just interpreted their existing constitution as being okay with that. Um, Colorado, Colorado, uh, Washington, D.C. Um, you probably know this more than I do now. No, that, those were the only ones that I know. I can't. I okay. Don't yeah, there, there but, are. You know, it's easy to find that information. People can look it up. Right, right. You can go to Death with Dignity or Compassion and Choices. Both of them track that kind of stuff. On so a regular Compassion basis. and Choices now is aligned with you. You guys work together and support each other. Uh, no, not so much. Uh, there's a little bit of a distance there because uh, for legitimate reasons, you know, they don't want to be too closely affiliated with us because yeah. um, the people who don't understand what we do might think that we're out there killing people and we're right. not. We don't do that. Yeah. However, uh, you know, all they need is that press out there to squash any attempts to get medical aid and dying passed. Right. And so that that was that mutual agreement to split. You know, they they focus on the legislation. We focus on helping people that the legislation leaves out or where it's not legal. And like I said, a lot of Fed members are members of Compassion and Choices and, and vice versa. But we don't have any official working relationship. Okay. 
Well, this has just been absolutely wonderful, Kevin. I love this. We could do this for hours, but now we have to stop. And I definitely want to bring you as a speaker to the Afterlife Conference or or something before 2022. (laughs) So thank you so much for everything that you do. And everybody uh, will give you all this information in the show notes. We'll have a bio from Kevin and some links that you can go to. So Thank you. Uh, By the way, as most of you know, our website is afterlifeconference.com. Final uh, exit is finalexitnetwork.org. And uh, you'll see it all in the show notes. So thank you, Kevin. Thank you, audience and supporters and followers. We love you and we'll see you next time.